A Tight Squeeze for Uncle George by Thomas Reed. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Devorah Allen. I came near going on the stage once. Not to act, you understand. Not as bad as that. But simply to show stage managers a few things about their business. In the fresh springtime of my career, I never hesitated to butt, with a few pertinent suggestions, into any ancient art or science I ran across. And having, at the time of this tale, just made the acquaintance of the drama, as a means of livelihood, which had been plugging along quite a spell on scanty resources, I deigned to give even that lowly calling a little attention. The occasion was my Uncle George's taking me to the theatre for the first time. In those days, people approved of the theatre as heartily as they do of opium dens now, that is to say, scarcely at all, or less. But Unc had a theory that it was beneficial to make the devil's acquaintance young, so he insisted, as much as he had to, on my going along. We had to watch our step carefully, because a previous expedition of ours under his theory, I think it was a horse race, had caused unmistakable demur in the family. It made father almost impetuous. He said that while a pesky bachelor, Uncle George was such, might poison his own soul in any loathsome way he saw fit, it meant a hell sentence for him to lure innocent youth into the clutches of the evil one. And he went on to describe, for Unc's special benefit, the warmth of that particular hell reserved for middle-aged reprobates convicted of luring. This was before the invention of thermit and oxyacetylene, and the only fuel that theology possessed to get up steam for the sinners with was fire and brimstone. With the modern inflammables, father's imagination of hell would have made him such an extra hazard around the house as to vitiate our fire insurance policy. But he did pretty well with even the old-fashioned chemicals. He did so well, anyhow, that Uncle George, when he called to take me to the matinee, thought it prudent to employ camouflage, and carried conspicuously two smelt poles and a can of bait, which he left in a vacant lot after they had created the desired atmosphere of innocence. The theatre that agitated the old folks so meant plays like Uncle Tom's Cabin and Ten Nights in a Bar Room that dripped like a shirt in the ringer with morality and sadness. As even these dismal sketches were supposed irresistibly to skid the virtuous from the straight and narrow path, a stupefied horror overspread the community when, along in the eighties, came the first show that actually aimed to be merry. "'Good night,' said the community." So there was something worse, after all. This new show was The Black Crook. Today we should call it Spectacle and Extravaganza, and let it go at that. But to the elders it was a moral catastrophe, without any special classification. They objected to it practically in toto, as the fellow says. They objected to the story of the play, or plot, because it was a downright lie, not even founded on fact which at least you could say for Eliza's trip on the ice. And what did you think of the witches and fairies and men dressed up like animals? Didn't that give you false impressions of life? I should say so. Then look at the dancers and card-trick players and actors that made believe intoxicated, all the forms of iniquity you ever heard of, and then some. But the most outrageous feature of all, the one mentioned with heavily bated breath, was the tights. Would you believe it? women, or beings in female form, actually came on the stage, wearing nothing but, 
sort of stockings, you know, on their... their... well, what they wear stockings on. It was only after the black crook had departed, it had quite a long run before all the sinners were accommodated, that my spiritual health was regarded as beyond danger. But alas, you get me? It happened to be that very show which Uncle George took me to see. It surely was a busy afternoon for little nephew, with his inventive mind. The celebrated ladies in stockings were all that fancy painted, and more, for they'd done some painting on their own account. These, being the work of so competent an inventor as the devil, were clearly beyond my powers of improvement. But the mechanical devices promptly met with my usual constructive criticism. Our being seated in the front row helped some. Uncle George said he had to sit there on account of being very near-sighted. Not having heard of his infirmity before, I felt sorry for him, and told him so, after which my conscience allowed me to reap the benefit of his misfortune. Several inventions occurred to me, so close together that they almost overlapped. I mentioned them to Uncle George, but the Amazons were marching, and he seemed preoccupied. Evidently the show as it stood was good enough for him. The chief of these inventions was inspired by a beautiful blue light, studded with stars, which invaded the stage at certain intense moments. Something told me it was produced by a glass plate shoved in front of the calcium light, the display being heralded by the magnified image of the chipped edge of the plate, followed by a flock of elephant tracks, due to prints of the operator's fingers, stained by honest toil. At the first sight of this spectacle, the invention referred to burst upon me with that sort of phoratic shock familiar to inventors, particularly young ones. By the time it came again, my apparatus was completed, mentally, to the last detail. By the third view, I was storming the theatrical profession with it, and making lucrative contracts right and left, and the royalties were just about to pour in when the show was over, and Uncle George was suggesting that we leave the Temple of Thespis by the back door on Mason Street, it being handier to the car, also less handy to the public eye. My invention consisted of allying to the projection business what highbrows call a sister art, and my acquaintance with this sister, a modest violet now to be dragged into the garish light that beats upon the stage, came about in the following way. The Riverside Press in Cambridge, my native burg, was a favorite prowling ground for us kids. If you were good, and didn't bother any, you could stand and watch one of the big presses squeeze a sheet of paper, haul it out covered with book pages, and spank it down on top of a pile of previously printed ones, with an almost human emphasis that reminded you of the there, thank goodness, air of a woman ironing the last piece in the wash. Sometimes the printer would give you a sheet that had got spoiled by going in crooked, and you could read the middle eight pages of a detective story for nothing, though, of course, a detective story with both the crime and the detection extracted is very low in percentage of thrill. Besides the printing, there were a hundred other processes to see, and each was so interesting that you never got very far in a single visit to the press. Before you knew it, the whistle would blow, the machinery would slow down and stop, and the workman would thank you for your kind attention and depart to see if he could find a clean place on the roller towel. One day, as I was exploring this palace of marvels, I came upon a workman over in a corner by himself, without a single power machine, and with only a tank and a lot of bottles. He was marbling paper, and the barbaric richness of his product 
was enough to make you dream you dwelt in marble halls, as the song goes. On the surface of his tank of water he sprinkled drops of brilliant-colored oils, red, green, yellow, brown, the vividest tints in the tintery. Each drop, as it struck the water, floated and spread out in a perfect circle. Then, as he combed or swirled the surface with the simplest tools, the colored circles drew out, zigzagged, spiraled, scalloped, and finally came to rest in the intricate design of variegated marble. On this, a sheet of paper was gently let down, the oils adhered in an instant, and the design, as intangible as a bubble, was fixed forever. That was the invention which popped into my head at the theatre. To project on the stage these magnificent colored designs, shifting every instant like the figures in a kaleidoscope. The drawing speaks for itself. The invention's middle name was Simplicity. The tank for blending the colors was to be of glass. The beam from a stereopticon, condensed by lenses, was to cast upward an image of the colored film, which a mirror would then reflect into a horizontal direction to flood the stage. The stirring of the colors was to be done by a stream of air through a blowpipe, to keep the cause of the changes invisible. Fortune was mine, again. If the theatrical world would stand for that crude blue-and-star effect, unworthy of the inventive powers of a semi-intelligent janitor, what sort of transports would it throw at sight of my dizzying spectacle? Answer. Once seen, it would be universally demanded. With the monopoly of the business in my grasp, I felt that I must be firm with Keralfi, the spectacle king of those days. He would probably try to get, for almost nothing, my invention which was destined to lift his shows absolutely out of the commonplace. The experiment had to be tried out, of course, if only for gloating purposes, and fortunately I had a small magic lantern as so much toward the equipment. I made a tank from a window pane surrounded by a wall of putty and the lone workman at the press, out of regard for science, also, to some extent for his own peace of mind, contributed an assortment of his liveliest pigments. My lantern being lighted, and everything ready for the test, I scattered a few drops of the various oils on the water in my tank, blew gently across the surface through a straw, and was delighted to see the colored discs stretch out, mingle in bands like a Roman sash, or form gorgeous designs varied from moment to moment, all projected in a magnified form on the whitewashed cellar wall. So far, I had got by without exciting the family suspicions of my dealings with the powers of darkness, as the magic lantern was a familiar household object, and I was always messing around with something or other. I was about ready to run away to New York and confer my invention on the waiting public when the enterprise was wrecked. Yes, sir, absolutely wrecked simply by extending the experiment to a wholly unnecessary realism. At that time, my particular pal and partner in undertakings of magnitude was Gimp Skillings, who lived next door. The Skillingses were easy-going people, and Gimp was little hampered by restrictions. In fact, he lived the wild, free life of a man of the world, so far as it could be done on an income expressed in marbles and rusty nails rather than money. Gimp, of course, knew all about the theatre, and while his approval of my invention was enough to guarantee it in the winning class, he strongly advised adding to our equipment a model stage. It seemed superfluous to me, but Gimp was keen for it, claiming that Mr. Keralfi always required a working model before signing a contract. In fact, it was the invariable custom in theatrical circles. 
That settled it. So we went to work and built a miniature stage out of a soapbox, painted with a proscenium arch and footlights, and hung with a series of cheesecloth curtains to reproduce the sensational finale of the Black Crook. A small doll of my sister's consented to assume the role of the Fairy Queen, standing with white robe, wings, and star-tipped wand behind the innermost curtain, to be revealed at the critical moment, rescue the lovers, and swat the crook into his flaming pit. The full-dress rehearsal came off at four o'clock one Saturday afternoon. It was a winter day, and cloudy at that, so it was practically pitch dark in the cellar, which of course was just what we wanted. Gimp worked the stage properties, while I handled the light. As I started the colors going, he raised the cheesecloth curtains one by one, declaiming the impressive climax of our favorite playlet, full of these and thous, with here and there a forsooth or two to give it tone. As the last curtain went up, exposing the doll in her fairy queen rig, Gimp turned on the full force of eloquence in the thrilling speech. "'Fear not, weak mortals. I will protect thee henceforth. And thou, O black crook, down, down with thee to the nethermost depths and the torments of the damned!' Whereupon Gimp opened the furnace door and threw in a lump of coal to represent the crook. Now, damned was a word very much out of favor in those times. Its use was considered such extremely bad form that when Father met with it in reading the Bible aloud, he mumbled it apologetically, as though its presence even there had been due to a slip on someone's part. So when Gimp damned the crook, I glanced around involuntarily, as you will at a noise in a haunted house, even if you don't believe in ghosts. One glance, and my blood froze solid. Out of that part of the dense darkness which I knew was the cellar doorway, a face stood forth. Only a face, no body attached, illuminated by the red glare from the furnace. The face was Father's. It looked as though our melodrama had got too good a start, and was about to unfold a new act on its own hook. Gimp and I shrank three sizes, and waited breathlessly. Breathless is often used to describe suspense, but it's generally an overstatement. Not in this case. Father opened up his performance with a sight act. Advancing on our theatrical equipment, he seized Gimp's stage in one hand and my pet apparatus in the other, and stuffed them into the furnace, where the ex-crook, with the rest of the coal, was glowing balefully. Then he cleared his throat for the speaking part. With a crime of such unusual juiciness to handle, it was up to Father to make a record. He did. He pounded like Elijah on the prophets of Baal, but not on me, on Gimp. And even on Gimp he lit only in passing, to denounce his supposed offense of enticing me to sin. Through Gimp, he was seizing the opportunity for his first good, healthy crack at the Skilling's family. It was bewildering to hear the vial of his wrath go bouncing down the field like a hot liner through the smarting hands of second base and shortstop. It was a three-bagger for the Skillingses, believe me. All the disapproval which he and mother had been nursing against their next-door neighbors since they first moved onto the street ten years before, tried to get off father's chest in a single package. The whole tale of their domestic shortcomings, from their soiled attic windows to their undisciplined, playmate-contaminating child. Father was not usually a rapid speaker, but this time you could almost hear the brakes squeak as his high-powered sentences fought each other for a place in the line. For my part, I knew this wasn't letting me out. Enticement was no excuse in our family, and I was scheduled later to get mine, 
with all the then modern embellishments, but there was almost cheerfulness in the thought that Uncle George was escaping the taint of a cruel, if merited, suspicion. Gimp, as the scapegoat, was being somewhat roughly handled, to be sure, but Gimp's injuries could be settled for, if I could only keep him quiet. The outraged Gimp, at every chance, was sputtering forth such preludes as, "'It wasn't—' "'Say, look here!' and most perilous of all, "'It was his unc—' At every sputter I pinched him forcefully in the darkness, also in the leg, hissing, "'Cheese it! Let it go! I'll make it all right with you!' and other soothing sounds, till finally I got him under control. The climax of father's speech came in a detailed list of the Skillings's failings. He tried to use words of one syllable, so Gimp could take it home with him, but he had to give that up. It was no job for verbal flivers. As it progressed, one learned that the family's denuded and broken-fenced yard excited not pity, but contempt, that their cornet-playing border was a nuisance which called for the attention of the grand jury, while as to their persistent and pestiferous practice of purloining their neighbor's property under the subterfuge of borrowing, it was enough. It was enough. Just then his foot stubbed on a gloom-hidden object which clanked softly at him, like a watchful friend in a threatened predicament, whispering, Spill! It was the Skillings's lawnmower, borrowed late in the season and forgotten. Father's discourse came to a sudden end. He wasn't taken aback, you understand. He only happened to be seized with a coughing spell he was subject to in moments of excitement. He fled upstairs for relief. Uncle George was saved, and Gimp applied himself to estimating his damages. That was as near as I got to the stage, for my great invention remained in abeyance, owing to unfavorable business conditions. The Black Crook and its successors, Superba, Babes in the Wood, and many other aids to moral indigestion, ran their course and died their proprietors never suspecting that they'd actually missed the one real opportunity of their lives. End of A Tight Squeeze for Uncle George by Thomas Reed